0: and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Today I welcome sound sculptor Glenn Wyatt, Based in Tucson, Arizona, Glenn explores a kind of sound ecology of the Sonoran Desert. One of his most critically acclaimed and socially conscious works, The ANTA Project, features sounds made by playing and sounding the border walls and fences between the United States and Mexico. In addition to field recording and environmental sound, Glenn also designs unique and intriguing electroacoustic instruments like his Kestrel 920 and the electric Ferris box. I'm really excited to talk about all of this work and more. Welcome to the show, Glenn.
1: Oh, hey. Hi. Hi. Good to talk to you, John.
0: Yeah. So I always like to start these discussions by getting a little bit of background. Uh, for you, I have a specific question this interest that you have in sound is distinct from, say, a classically trained musician or, you know, someone involved with popular music. Even as a percussionist, I mean, um, the sounds that you're interested in go beyond, uh, an instrument into the environment, into created sound. And, um, for you it's all of these sounds they are around us or the fantastical sounds that you can create with found objects and electronics. So I want to ask you what sparked your interest in sound making and work of this kind.
1: You know it's it's, it's a great great question. Um and I'm not even sure 100% how to answer it. You know it's throughout my entire life I've been working with sound and as I grew older um, and economics changed, I was able to get more equipment to document the things that I was doing. Um, but you know I can go all the way back to childhood and uh, you know, just sort of sounding objects and figuring out how to basically compose with the, the, the world around me. Um, and then later, as you know, maturity comes into place, so I start to develop the language to describe those things. Um, So, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm always trying to figure out exactly what music is, um, and the idea of composition, you know, um, Mm -hmm. sound, composing sound, what is sound, um, what's a pleasant sound, what's an unpleasant sound, why is that? Um, and I think the thing that I'm coming to, you know, at at this stage of, you know, my evolution, I'm 51, so, um, kind of halfway there, I guess, um, is that. You know, music is the composition of sound. And so all sound has value, but we, we either discard or keep in certain sounds based on our um, our likes, our dislikes, our cultural backgrounds. And so uh, for myself, it's it's all a, a compositional process of finding, you know, like listening to a soundscape, just the act of listening, um, I've discovered is, is is composing the sound, you know, the way I position my head, what sounds I'm listening to. Um, so it's just sort of an an evolution of being within a um, an audio environment and then building things that create sounds that um, I would like to work with in certain ways. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways I've, I've, I've been trained, you know, I, not necessarily by um, uh, instructors who are in the music field, but I've been trained by people who listen. Um, one of the things I've, I've talked about uh, with people and, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, It was an urban area in New Jersey. But what you would do when you would go hunting was you'd go off into the woods and you would listen. And so much of it, you know, it was was back before the Uber hunting we have now. You know, everyone's going to war in the woods. You know, you had a a rifle that your great-grandfather owned or something. And, you know, you had a six-pack of beer and you sat up in a tree and you probably didn't shoot anything all day, but you spent your time listening to everything around you. Um, and so like those kind of listening experiences, uh, taught me quite a, quite a bit. Not so much from the hunting perspective, my conversations with hunters, I was somebody who would be out there in the woods, sitting in a tree, but without a gun. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah. Does that sort of answer it? Or?
0: No, that totally answers it. So, um, I, I, mean, I'm just making an assumption here that you had at some point discovered John Cage and, and this sort of environmental, uh, listening, um, but maybe that's not, Right. So this was something that you just uh, sort of came upon on your own, or was this oh, influenced by people like Cage or?
1: Yeah. I well, absolutely. I mean, Cage, uh, Pauline Oliveros, Um, You know, there, there's 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 definitely a, a a a legacy that I have tapped into as I've gone along. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 something that I have learned you know, before the internet, you had to go to a record store and go through bins of records to find that stuff that was, that was interesting, at least to me. And then when the internet came around, you know, everything was available. And so um, I would say since 2000, um, there's so much more that I've been able to connect to, you know, thanks to the internet and whatnot. But in the past, it'd be, you know, uh, hanging out with some friends, playing music, and someone says, hey, did you hear about deep listening? And like, well, what's deep listening? And, you know, we'd kind of like talk about it, but we didn't have any books. We didn't have yeah. any, you know, we couldn't look it up online. And then, you know, you'd start to, oh, hey, check out that song on, um, you know, a radio station. Like back east, I could do some good experimental kind of programs. And, you know, you'd hear, oh, there's that name Pauline Oliveros. And then later on, you'd, oh, here it is online. And so, you know, it's it's everyone's been sort of in that mix. It's definitely a tapestry. I don't I don't claim to have any like original thought, I don't think. I think it's just a a real hodgepodge, a a tapestry of of ideas that have been woven together and um, everything from, you know, inception through now.
0: So you mentioned the internet, uh, and that's how I discovered your work. Uh, I mentioned to you um, in our conversation before we started recording that when I was in grad school, we were given the assignment to sort of, we had, we'd we gotten to the end of the course. This was a um, percussion literature course, so it was history and literature, and we'd gotten to the end of the course, and the assignment was okay. Now you have this whole trajectory of everything that came before. Your assignment was to go out and find out what's happening right now. What are people doing in the fields of instrument building and you know, extensions of things that Cage was doing with, you know, environmental sound or uh, found objects or whatever. And so we were given that assignment and and that's when I found your work. But I draw, I come back to the point, which is um, the internet. How much has it changed your work? Or how has it influenced your work? I mean, you mentioned it, so I thought maybe that would be an interesting thing to talk about. Oh, I I
1: think so. Um, The the internet gave me uh, an audience that was much larger than I ever could have had without uh, a record label. For example, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, I would make these recordings, and you know, we'd pass around tapes amongst friends, or I would be making tapes for my own, of my own interest. Um, and one of the ways of distributing would be to, you know, come up with a two-side cassette, a MaxL, Max XL2S90, um, put a postcard in there, a self-addressed, self-addressed uh, postcard. Um, explain what the work was all about, put it in a Ziploc bag and like leave it on a, you know, a bench at a bus stop and uh, sort of get feedback from random people in that way. When the when the Internet came around, you know, that, that was it was just a very grassroots type of thing. I mean, creating music, experimenting sound is something I have to do. You know, it's it's, it's a part of who I am. Yeah. Um, and the audience um would come through, let's say, performance. It could come through just hanging out with a bunch of friends. It could come through uh, distributing through tapes, and then the internet suddenly allowed me to put sound up. Um, in fact, the border wall stuff was one of the first uh, experiments, you know, in trying to figure out what that audience is. And I could connect with the entire world, uh, well, at least wherever the world is connected. And that was a, a revelation um, to, to see how that that. That, that, the possibility of connecting with somebody on the other side of the globe, who has an internet connection, um, and uh, yeah, that's the internet's been very influential. I think uh, both for distribution and of, of my ideas, but also the, and maybe it's like a cross pollination, learning about other people's ideas because there's just so many people doing interesting stuff out there. Yeah, you know, it's, oh it's yeah, not, it's, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. So um, you mentioned this project. I guess is now's a, as good of a time as any to bring it up because this is the thing that I um, stumbled upon uh, when I found your work was this uh, project where you were sounding the border walls and fences between the U.S. and Mexico. Can you t- tell us a little bit about that uh, project and how you came up with the idea? And uh, And it's still ongoing. Is that right? Are you still doing this or...?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually coming up on its tenth anniversary. It's it's been a, it'll be a decade um, next year. I, I, I came up with the idea in 2005. So the, the, the idea, the, the inception of the idea of doing this was in uh, 2005 through 2015. Um, but yeah, it, it you know it began very simply with um, I was out doing some birding. Um, there's there's beautiful desert areas that run between the United States and Mexico. And you you couldn't tell the difference between the United States and Mexico. It all just sort of blends together, these these undulating grasslands and horizons. And that was one of the things that brought me to to Arizona. Um, My wife and I came out here for birding in particular. We'd heard a lot about uh, the borderland and and the open spaces. And I was doing some birding, and um, this was around 2005. And this huge Black Hawk helicopter uh, suddenly rose up and flew over me. and it's a very militarized thing. And it kept circling me and it's, you know, very percussive thumping sounds. It's going around circles. And I was taking pictures of the helicopter above me as the helicopter was taking pictures of me. And it was, you know, this strange absurdist feedback loop going on. And, you know, it was all from um, watching birds. I was watching birds. I, I wasn't doing anything illegal that I knew of, but it was still suspicious. And so that was sort of the idea was uh, this changing sound ecology, you know, where you just had grasslands before, you now have this militarized uh, helicopter flying over, and very loud, very percussive. Um, and so then I came up with this idea, we were talking about building, at the time there weren't many walls built yet um, between the United States and Mexico, but the uh, funding was going into place, the infrastructure was going into place, and so my idea was to begin playing a wall that is in uh, Nogales, Arizona, um, which is right over the other side is Nogales, Sonora, which is in Mexico. And it, basically, the cities are almost identical, but there's this piece of metal that would divide the two. And um, I thought it would be an opportunity to hear what it sounds like um, to play it, and then to also share images with the rest of the world about this idea of um, of walls being built and then how they can be transformed. So that began 2006, um, and then over the years, as as new walls were built, um, you know, there were some wire fences that were in place. I played those, and then the wire fences were torn up, and and then these uh, large uh, metal bollard, sort of walls of just pipes that just run forever, were put in place. And I just kept chain, recording this stuff, um, and it's really interesting because especially in the in the in the in the grasslands, where it's very quiet, you know, I mean, it's, there's a there's a silence there. That if you listen deeply, um, you start to hear more and more. You can hear the insects. I mean, just a cricket can be so loud out there. Mm. And this wall, you know, it screams when the wind blows through it um, and it just howls. Um, there's times when the wall itself reflects sound. So if you hit two sticks together in the right place, you get this, this you know, uh, fractional delay. And it's, it's very alien and odd and strange in this very natural environment. Um, And recently, a a gas pipeline was built between the United States and Mexico in this area, and now there's wires that crackle with electricity, and there's pumps that are going. And so I've been documenting. This is in a place called Sasebe, Sasebe, Arizona, and Sasebe in in Mexico. And I've been documenting the the changing sound ecology in this area for almost a decade. Um, And it's, you know, it's. I think having grown up in New Jersey, where you have, I live in relatively suburban urban areas. Um, to go out to nature and then you know see it like this really pristine nature that's out there with just basically cattle ranchers and Native Americans and uh, you know and then migrants um, and then seeing this whole thing just change into this militarized zone and how the sound ecology is affected by that um, it's just been morphing uh, over the past ten years till it's it's become increasingly complex um, you know I've built microphones I have pedals I, I actually you know, um, gear is so inexpensive. Now I have a little looper that I think I got for $60 that runs off a nine volt battery so I can loop stuff. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm still playing it. I, I hope someday there's nothing to play, but until that day comes, um, yeah, I'm out there still.
0: Well, it's really interesting work and, and there's been a lot of, uh, you've had a lot of sort of critical acclaim for this work. I, I noticed, uh, a write-up in the LA times and, uh, there was a recent posting on YouTube uh an Italian, was it an Italian news uh, coverage or something?
1: Right, yeah, it was it was, it was a, a, a Italian news service that I I guess it's translated to multiple languages and and they put it in all the airports uh number of airport feeds and uh yeah, it's it's, it's basically um reached reached out all around the world um and it began really humbly with just I was going to make these recordings, I had bare minimum equipment. Um I there was a piece on National Public Radio where they were asking people to uh, send in sound files. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll send in a sound file of the, of the wall. And then I wrote a piece for a magazine called Signal to Noise, which um, I don't think it's it's published anymore. Actually, I, I know it's not, but they might have some web presence. And um, then it just started to, you know, connect with people because walls are being built all around the world, migration issues. And people all over the world who are having, uh, you know – wondering what can I do and how do you transform things and issues of migration. Um, There's a a professor up in uh, NAU, Northern Arizona University. Uh, His name is Bob Neustadt, and uh, he put together a a double CD of basically border wall songs. It has all these fantastic artists on it, Um, and there's a really nice poetry piece uh, by a poet named Margaret Randall that we had done a, a, a drive through the desert one day, and play the wall a bit. And so she recites this, po- this poem. And I have some, uh, some field recordings and a little bit of droning I, I made with a uh, uh, cable from a uh, virtual security sat- tower that <laughs> wasn't operational, but wow. it served as a fantastic uh, instrument. Um, and uh, it was like, yeah, multi-billion dollar instrument. Wow. And I I played that, and then this this the nice thing is this CD that Bob put together with with like I said, lots of amazing musicians, I'm humbled to be with them, um, has raised almost eighty thousand dollars, I think, wow. for an, a humanitarian organization called No More Deaths. And they're a group that puts water jugs out in the desert. So what happened was the wall was played. it was turned into music. The music was then sold to help put water in the in the desert for the people. Who are dying trying to walk around the wall, you know, and has this wow. th- an interesting uh, symmetry to the whole thing. Amazing. So, yeah, it's got a lot. It's, it's just evolved, you know, over the last 10 years. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious to know, I, I'm interested in socially conscious uh, art and pieces that are socially conscious I wonder when when you set out for uh you mentioned moving to Arizona did you move there just for the the wide open spaces and the you mentioned the birding and um is that is that how you ended up out west
1: Yeah uh we were we were um my wife and I were on uh, uh Nantucket we lived on Nantucket and uh um I was working for a newspaper she was doing some birding and um we just said let's let's go somewhere uh somewhere different and uh we kind of got into that that vortex which you you might know about it being from texas it's sort of you oh yeah i'm gonna leave i'm gonna leave i'm gonna leave oh i'm still here i'm still here and then you know you wind up staying for 20 years so far and (laughs) yeah yeah it it kind of i mean it's a gorgeous place it's a it's a beautiful place um but it's gone through a lot of changes it's You know, I I worked on a another piece called the Sonorous Desert uh, City project. Yeah. um, Because our urban core is, which is like a lot of small cities in in the U.S., has just gone through this major revitalization with a lot of gentrification, the introduction of a a a new uh, trolley system, um, and a lot of um, uh, residences that are high rise of sorts that brings in a huge population. So it just changes the the acoustics. Of the entire city, um, you know, it was a very open, wide-open city, and with all these buildings going up and these new sounds, um, and then these walls that sort of trap the sound and create echoes, the city was changing very rapidly. And I was fortunate enough to get a grant to record the city before all this stuff went online. Um, and maybe in ten years, I'll uh, I'll reapply for another grant and rework that at some point. Yeah.
0: But, well, yeah. I guess I guess where I was going with my um, my question earlier was living in the West and being in this border environment uh, that moved you to want to say something about it. And the experience that you had out in the desert—I mean, I, I suppose those experiences pointed to you towards a more socially conscious art. Or or were you already did you already have uh, artworks in mind that were about issues? Or I guess where did you find that voice? You know, it, a lot, a lot
1: of it comes back to my my roots as a journalist, um, or I was a journalist. I haven't practiced traditional journalism. I taught journalism at the U of A, um, and journalism in some ways is very. Um, it's become, you know, there's a traditionalist version of journalism, and then there's all this other stuff that's going on out there, and I was sort of found myself as as freelancing. Uh, was not really paying the rent anymore. It was dropping in price, and I was teaching. Um I want to tell the story of the borderlands as a journalist and using my skills as a musician, um which really, I don't consider myself a musician, but that's just to sort of you know quantify, I guess in somewhere, as a sound sculptor. Um, I use sound to tell a story through a piece of you know a piece of art, I guess, a a, a musical piece. And then use images which came from photojournalism and writing text in a narrative for this entire piece. Um, so it kind of blended my my passions for journalism, my passions for storytelling, my passions for sound. Um, you know, but going all the way back, the stuff that I would record usually had, you know, as I look back on it, it would have some sort of a political element to it, or it would have a sort of a you know. Um, a commentary on the way. The, I mean, I think any experimental music really is a commentary, isn't it? I mean, in some way, you know, it's this outsider thing that's going on.
0: I, I suppose you could say you could say that. Um, but uh, but some pieces are then totally abstract. You know, they're not really about about anything. Uh, but the work that you do, it's it's definitely about something. You know, it's definitely um, tapping into your sort of socio-political environment, you're tapping into where you are, you know? And I think that's a, a really important function of an artist is to take a look at what's going on around them and to respond to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of just, you know, creating creating abstract works that... Not that there's... And I don't mean to diss that kind of work either because, uh, you know, I'm interested in abstract painting, for instance. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to mean anything. It's just uh, a, an interesting, beautiful... Uh, mysterious thing but um, but, as a performer myself and as someone who you know is uh, in touch with students, I want them to know that one of the things about art is that it can be about something you can respond in in you you may not be um, the person that's going to go be a congressman or a police <laughs> officer or right, something right, like right. that. Uh, but you can respond in your way by making by making pieces or playing music that is about something that's important to you, and so I I think that's something that attracted me to your work for sure.
1: Oh, I, I and I agree wholeheartedly with you. I, one of one of the things I wanted to do when I when I put out the the, the work, which is called the Anti Project, and then after the Anti Project, there was one called Drone Land Security when drones were just starting to go up on the border. I love
0: that title, Drone Land Security.
1: That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was you know, and because a drone was like this was this right it was a musical element, a sound element for so long, and then it became this insidious thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and so uh, w- when those came out, I I I could have just put them out as just you know music as as a sound piece as a recording, but I wanted to have that narrative about you're hearing a wall or you're hearing the sound of a drone or you're hearing the sound of of field recordings made in a in a landscape that's changing. And the narrative, you know, maybe in some ways the, 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 the instrument is the message in, in, you know, cause it's this, it, it connects in a different way. I, I, when I put everything on the website, I wanted to make sure that people would have to go to the website to download it and they would have to come in contact with images and sounds, um, that were connected. So if, if, for example, somebody was in, um, like I had a lot of, uh, downloads from, uh, um, uh, countries that did not speak English. Um, And how would I, 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 everything on my website was in English. So the images would explain what it was they were hearing, right? Um, And so, yeah, those two things had to be together. And I wanted to make sure, you know, it wasn't just a sound piece. It was something more than that. Um, So, yeah, you're right right about that. There has to be that. That, that connection that's woven together but without hitting people over the head with it <laughs>
0: you know? well that's always the that's always the no. challenge right that's always right. the challenge is to make something that's uh, that says something about a particular issue but but it doesn't as you said hit somebody over the head with it and and tell them how to think about something but simply to uh, suggest or to draw attention to a particular issue
1: yeah the the LA Times piece when when the videographer was out, and I had never had this happen before. A Border Patrol agent played with me and, and, um, he was totally into it, you know, and it, it, it really almost got rid of the, it didn't have to have a political meaning to you. Anyone could read into it, what they want, but it was an instrument, right? That was, that was the bottom line. And I've played with migrants. I've played with, um, people who are ranchers and now here I was playing with a, a Border Patrol agent, you know? Um, yeah. and so, you know, it, it, people can read into things what they want to read into them, but, um, here it was a, you know, it was a wall, but it was also an instrument, and an instrument can definitely uh, connect people more than a wall can.
0: and we're back we were listening to a little bit of uh, Glenn's work I also want to say that uh, Glenn people are interested in listening right now and want to go and listen to more and read more and find out about your work they can visit your website sonic how do you say this sonicanta.com
1: Right, sonicanta.com, or you could say Sonic Kanta. Kanta is the sing. It kind of goes both ways.
0: Sonickanta.com. So. And I'll make sure and put a link in the show notes on my website uh, to all of this stuff as well, so you can find it there. One of the things that uh, interests me about what you do is how you work independently of academia. You work independently. I mean, you're just a, an independent artist. And I'm always interested to find out how people make this work and how they do this. And uh, (laughs) I recently discovered a book uh, through another podcast that I listened to called The Conversation, hosted by Michael Shaw. And it's a podcast for visual artists, or maybe not for visual artists, but definitely a lot of his guests, most of his guests are visual artists or people in the art world. And one of the people that he interviewed was this artist named Sharon Loudon, who had written a book called called uh, Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. I should say she edited or collected this uh, book of essays. So it's 40 different essays from all these different artists, each one responding with their own story of how they have and are sustaining a creative life. And I was struck by a particular passage that uh, Sharon wrote in her introduction to the book, and I wanted to get your reaction to this quote. She says, The power of creativity does not just lie in an artist's work but also in how he or she continues to create regardless of the obstacles life places in the way the process of simply making work over time should be celebrated since our society so often judges artists externally by false milestones
1: yeah yeah i mean that's there's there's a lot of truth to that i mean before like i, I didn't you know i i kind of came into i became more known because of the internet, but I've been doing it for 25, 30 years, actually. I mean, I'll say 25 because I probably started when I was like five years old, um, before that. And I've got boxes of tapes in the closet. Um, you know, I think an artist needs to, I mean, we all create for our own different reasons. There's so many different reasons to create. I don't want to say someone should do it because in this particular way, but, but for myself, it's, it's just like eating or breathing. If I don't, you know, play some music, um, if I don't do some listening, if I don't do some creating, um, I can almost feel it building up, like I've gotta go do this. And the work is, you know, from cradle to grave, I feel. Um, it, it doesn't ever stop. And I've always looked at it like, you know, I didn't want to I had friends who would um they were gonna be an artist and they need to get grants and they're not gonna work a nine to five job. In fact they're not gonna work at all. They just gotta get these grants and they gotta survive on it. And either of two things happens, either they become, well, maybe three things. They become really disillusioned you know, with the whole process and they just give up on it. Oh, I suck. I can't do this. I'm not making any money. Or they totally sell out and their stuff becomes bland as all hell um, in order to go for whatever those grants are, what they're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And then there, 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 there are people that um, you know find that, yeah, you know I've, I've got a gig tonight. I'm making 50 bucks at the local bar. I'm going to continue working at whatever my nine to five job is. And every once in a while you hit one out of the ballpark and it's like, wow, you know, it's your the creative side is starting to bring in more money. It's, it's doing well, you know. But there's also that underpinning of like how am I going to put food on the table, how am I going to put gas in the car? Um, and I think by having that connection, that rooted connection to what it means to be alive, you know, the other part is – You know, it's like going to church or temple or synagogue or whatever it happens, mosque, you know, whatever your thing happens to be. It's 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 worshiping in a way. You know, it's 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 being connected to something that's bigger, at least for myself, is bigger than than I am. It's something I've got to be a part of. And um, I can't do it 24-7 (laughs) because that's like (laughs) madness. Right. Right. It's Like holy madness. It's like um, so I but I but I do it when I can do it and I create it when I can create. And um, I'm always thinking of a. Ideas of things I want to do, and in some ways, by not being able to do it all the time, I can sort of sort through the ideas. I can refine them. Um, you know, write, jot some stuff down on a sticky pad, and come back to it. And uh, you know, if it doesn't make money, that's that's okay. It's awesome when it does make money. Um, and but it, you know, if there's an audience, you know, I'm always putting it out there for an audience. Some of it really connects. Some of it doesn't. Um, I put out a a, a Bandcamp, uh, you know, like a Bandcamp seven-track thing. Uh, uh, unpopular music for unpopular people, and uh, you know, no one retweeted it, I barely <laughs> heard anything. uh... but a few people wrote back saying, like, yeah, you know, that's that's exactly what it's all about. And th- th- there was there was probably about 10 sales. Um, so you know, it's like, I'm like, hey, great, it connected with those people, I'm happy with that. You know, that worked for me. Um, yeah. you know, and so, uh, you know, what's the reason for, for doing it? And for me, it's it's just like breathing or eating. Um, and when the money comes it's great and the money, you know, helps continue it. Um, I always try my I have a goal that I can never be paying out more than is coming in. So like if I need a new piece of gear, I need to sell so many CDs or albums or downloads or whatever it happens to be to buy that new piece of gear. You know, some people think buying the gear is what makes them the artist, but I try and live frugally and try and be very gorilla in the in the way I do things. And that's where like we were talking about building your own instrument. Building on your own instrument is a wonderful thing because there's so, much, so many materials out there and it's so affordable and you can really create a unique original voice um, rather than going out and buying a brand new you know, Gibson guitar and a new Fender amp and you know, a bunch of effects. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, maybe you can tell us about uh, some, some particular obstacle uh, that you found in, in your path and, and how you navigated um, that particular issue.
1: Uh, one was when, when uh, I've, 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 I have two children and my, my first one she was born uh, 11 years ago and at the time I was uh, working mostly with tenor sax and uh, you know every night I would play tenor sax and, and I was really into Albert Eiler and uh, um, some of the really late period Coltrane a lot of the really free dr- free jazz stuff that um, was just pushing that, 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 that wall of sound in a direction I don't think we'll ever know where it was going to go next because it just all sort of you know kind of died in in many ways um it got to a point that was just so powerful and then the people who were doing it disappeared and you know where's it go next but I was so I was in that stage um and so when my when my you know suddenly got a baby in the house (laughs) and and skronking at you know 11 o'clock at night isn't working out and so that that forced me into the world of contact mics and piezo discs and um you know that actually eventually led me to meeting with Eric Leonardson, that was sort of one of those connections, um, because I was working with micro sounds, tiny sounds, small sounds, hidden sounds, in order to not really wake the baby. I, I was listening to them, and I was playing those things on my sax, for example, or when I when I when I would play the world, you know, playing something outdoors like a swing set or something. But now I was really focusing on headphones and this this internal world, and that led to playing the wall, you know, the internal world of the wall and the border. Putting microphones on it and listening to it. And then that just sort of, you know, organically evolved into where things are at this point. Um, to the point that uh, I'm sort of developing techniques for cello that are based on playing the border wall. <laughs> um, wow. I, yeah, I, I had, there's, you want to hear a little, like a little side story? Sure.
0: That? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So when when the Anti project came out, about two years after that, and then the internet was coming online, and there was more and more voices out there, I heard from uh, a guy in Australia, uh, John Rose, who was very well known as as an artist. He's an amazing innovator, incredible person. But I I wasn't aware of him at the time, and that's my own ignorance. It's not that he wasn't that he should I should have been aware of him, but I wasn't. Um, and he plays like the uh, the barbed wire fences uh, with his partner Hollis Taylor in Australia, and uh, I heard from him. He was coming to the United States, and he was going to build a, a fence for Kronos Quartet—a wire fence of all these different wires—and they wanted to do a piece that had to do with border security. And that was about two years after the National Public Radio piece came out. And so I was kind of carving that niche, and they were going to do something that was in on stages. And John came out, um, and he and I had a chance to do some playing, and he was, we were talking about playing barbed wire fences. And uh, he was explaining to me how he taught Kronos Quartet to play a barbed wire fence, and yeah, and it was it was really odd, right? Like I was like, really, and and you know, he, he, John's got a smirk and and a wink and a nod, kind of. I mean, he's he, he's he's a wise guy. He's he's smart, and he's he's uh, he's really fascinating. And so yeah, he's like, yeah, I had to teach him, but he knew the absurdity of teaching classically trained musicians how to play a fence, and yet there it was, right? Yeah. And so then, one of the reasons I did it with the cello bow and whatnot was that I just thought anybody could do it. This is you could bring whatever you want to it. You can find those sounds and work with it. So later on, a few years go past, there was a movie that came out called *The Reacher Resonance*, and in that they have they they, they, they talk about John and they talk about Kronos um, Quartet, and I've got a little piece in there. Um, and Kronos Quartet was coming to Tucson, and um, uh, David Harrington, I guess the the, the lead. Uh, Violin player for Mm -hmm. violinist. When I saw they were coming to Tucson, I wrote to him and I said, "Hey, you know, it would be great to speak with you. Um, We're in that movie together, and I know John. And you guys are playing that fence. It would be great if you could bring that fence to Tucson and play it on the stage. But better yet, why don't you guys come with me out to the border wall and you could learn how to play it in the field where guys with machine guns are watching you rather than people (laughs) in the audience, right? (laughs) You know, Uh a little more dangerous. Yeah, you know, and you're kind of doing it for real. See what that's like." And so, you know, he, he said, no, I can't do that. But he, he, we met together and we talked. And he was very gracious and he was, he was very interesting. But the thing that got me was that he was this classically trained musician who was, or musicians that were taking wire and trying to apply the ideas of classical music to it, their classical training. Yeah. And I realized I've been playing the world with a bow trying to get sounds out of metal, trying to get sounds out of wire without that instrument training, like I didn't know how to play a cello, but I can play a barbed wire fence. And so why not take the, the application of that bow usage and trying to you know, discover a sound and use it and then apply it to the cello. And so I play a cello now, um, which sounds like a wall whereas or a fence, whereas they play a fence that would sound like a cello, you know. <laughs> um, and so it has this sort of backwards. But, but it all came out of meeting, you know, it all came out of having a baby, and having to be more quiet and then following this whole thing, wow. you know, and it just keeps on building on. Self.
0: That's an amazing story. Um, well, Glenn, you, you clearly need to hang out with some more percussionists because <laughs> 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 that's all we do is, you know, bang around on cans and uh, pluck wires and uh, do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that when I uh, got to meet Mark Applebaum as composer, who does instrument building as well. And uh, we've, uh, featured him at a couple of our Percussive Art Society conventions. And um, he said, you know, I finally found my people. <laughs> Percussionist, you guys, you guys are my people. This I finally you you know, you get me. <laughs> so I, I think Glenn, maybe maybe we can hook you up with some percussionists who, who get what you're <laughs> doing out there and, and 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 would totally, you know, a uh, a classically change a trained violinist is probably the last person who's going to go, you know, out <laughs> to the border where there's machine guns. But get a group of percussionists together. They'll love that. They'll be all Absolutely. about it. They'll bring their vans, you know, and, and they'll show up with stuff uh, with well, all should, of their. It's with, you know, uh, part of. We should do that. Totally. We should do that. We should get a whole group of uh, percussionists together uh, and. and take a road trip and go down to the wall and make a make a record or something. That would be uh, yeah. amazing. That would be amazing. All right. But, um, you know, percussionists, we deal with uh, uh, implements and objects all the time. And, and it's all about the physical resonances of a cymbal or a gong or a drum. You know, so we're it's very, uh, for lack of a better word, sensual. You know, uh, it's all about touch and how you touch a particular object to bring forth sound. And uh, we spend years and years, you know, perfecting how to, um, you know, activate that drum with a stick or with our hands. And so it's, it's we're definitely in that world already, and uh, it doesn't take much to take one step away from that towards playing a border wall or, you know, uh, playing a, a barbed wire fence. Uh, that's something that's uh, not so far afield from what we do anyway let's talk a little bit about your instrument building. You mentioned the name Eric Leonardson, who's somebody that I had also discovered only just recently um, and kind of modeled my own instrument building after some of the work that he did. How did you get started building your own instruments and working with contact microphones? Well,
1: you know, the building of instruments, um, I've been doing it, you know, all the way back to when I was a kid. It was just sort of improvising, uh, creating things that would make sounds. Uh, I remember in in, in college, for example, some friends and I hung out one day, and uh, we had this big bowl of water, metal bowl. Um, We had a a wrench on a a string. You would twist the string really tight, and the wrench would spin, and as you put it down towards the water, it would make this wonderful sound that would just be uh, reverberating out of that metal bowl. And, uh, you know, it had that kind of, oh, hey, wow, cool man effect to it. But it was also experimenting and playing with sound and building an instrument. You know, it was, it was something that could be used in different ways. The most recent area with the, like for example, the Kestrel 920, is um, my daughter's name and she was born on 920. Um, so that's where the name comes okay. from. Okay. And uh, I, I went out and I, I went to a, a junkyard and I played a bunch of different things I thought sounded interesting and I brought them back home and I assembled this pile of stuff into um, something I could play. In retrospect, Eric Larsen was somehow in the back of my head. Again, he's another one of those that's in there. You know, it's it's one of those threads that's woven through because um, when I look at the springs and and the eye hooks that I use, they are so identical to what he was doing, and he's been do- he was doing that years before I ever did it. So that's something that was in there. Um, I had uh, different wires and things. You know, um, when I was in my uh, my uh, my teens through early 20s uh i remember going to uh, grateful dead shows um to go see uh you know there's a, a place where they do this like a, a percussive piece and then they would do this instrumental piece and that was what i was always very interested in because it seemed very um avant-garde and it was in a huge hall but they had something called a beam which was just basically a, a piece of aluminum i believe it is with a bunch of bass wires and piano wires on it Okay. And they could do all kinds of things with that, and so I became interested in working more with wires. I've, I've learned over the years all the other people that were doing stuff with wires, but you know that was in popular culture. Um, and so all these ideas kind of filtered into the into the Kestrel nine twenty. Um, also, my, my interest of, with bikes. Um, a, a, a video recently, I think within like the last couple of years, surfaced of Frank Zappa playing a bicycle in the nineteen fifties. It looked like I had no idea Frank Zappa had done that, but. Um, I always knew from when I was a kid, you know, bowing a bike sounds interesting. You could do all kinds of stuff with the spokes and whatnot. Oh, yeah. So all those sorts of things would go onto this massive, uh, just a piece of wood that had a nice sound to it. Um, when I used to live near the ocean, I would play driftwood, you know, I, I, uh, percussively, you know, because you get great sounds out of it. The contact mics were usually off the shelf, uh, would be used for tuning a guitar usually, okay. something like that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I went to Chicago, I think it was like 2000 and. 8 or 2009, and that's where I, I, I spoke with Eric it off and on, but um, through email. And I'd gone there, and there was a, a couple of things going. It was an event called Chicago Calling uh, that Dan Godston, who I believe is buddies with, with Eric as well, had put on, and I met with Eric. And then uh, Eric, through one of his classes, he invited me to sit in as, uh, well, to we'll present the Anta project, and then sit in as he showed them how to build uh, contact mics from piezo discs. It was brilliant. It was so simple, it was oh, so yeah. so clean. Yeah. And I was like, dude, that's that's what I'm gonna do. And and since then I've done a few workshops, but I, it always goes back like this. This is what Eric's doing in Chicago, you know. <laughs> um. And so that that's led because it's so in, it's, it's so affordable to build those things. Oh yeah. Um. You know, it's just uh, everything can be amplified. And and uh, you know, to this day, it's it just is sort of again organically grown to include all sorts of things uh, from yeah. the, from the border walls to whatnot. Yeah.
0: I guess my first uh, introduction to contact microphones was playing that John Cage piece, "Child of Tree," where you have to mm-hmm. amplify—you sure. have to amplify a cactus. And in the instructions to "Child of Tree," you know he uses a, re- uh, a record cartridge, like a ter- um, you know needle for a turntable, mm-hmm. and that's what he used right. to back then to <clears throat> amplify the cactus. But I'd had a class uh, by actually a guy that lives in in Tucson, the professor of percussion there in Tucson at the University of Arizona, Norm Weinberg, uh, took a class from him when I was in high school on electronic percussion. And he was really, he still is, really into drum machines and electronic uh, percussion sounds and building sort of uh, triggered instruments and this kind of thing. And MIDI was really big in those days, and so he was uh, big into that. Uh, but he showed us how to take apart the little disc you buy at Radio Shack, the little <laughs> plastic housing, and take it apart and make your own contact microphones. Of course, he was using them as drum triggers, uh, which right. you can also you know, use them to trigger some MIDI sound or something. So that's what he was doing with them. But uh, So I'd remembered that from when I was in sort of high school, and then when I got to college and uh, started discovering uh, John Cage, and, and particularly this piece, Child of Tree, it totally captured my imagination that... Uh, I could make sounds from plucking cactus spines. I just had, (laughs) that just seemed like so fantastical of an idea and I couldn't wait to try it out. And so I, you know, built my first microphone and found a, uh, my grandfather dug up a cactus from his old, you know, he has some uh, land in central Texas and uh, like a cattle ranch. And he dug up one of these old prickly pear cactus for me. And it's like, what are you going to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to make music from it, you know. And um, so that was, uh, that was sort of, I think anybody that, uh, I think there's a certain interest in some people to make sounds in unusual places and to find sounds in unusual places. You mentioned really small sounds, almost going internally, just just in the headphones, and that's kind of what this cactus uh, thing is. You know, it's um, amplifying this world that we would never hear otherwise through the contact microphone. And then I guess the stuff that, uh, that you've done and that Eric Leonardson was doing uh, was n- not, not so much uh, finding those tiny sounds... But, but uh, amplifying the sounds that are already interesting, the sound of a spring, for instance, already has a pretty interesting sound, but when you put the contact microphone on it and then you use all these different implements, then all of a sudden you're opening up this whole other world of, of sound, and that's something that that contact microphone opens up for you, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, yeah, and, and isn't it so interesting that those sounds exist? It's just we're just not aware of them, right? Right. Kind of, yeah, it's yeah.
0: like putting a microscope on a sound in a way. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot of sound out
1: there and you know heard and unheard and figuring out how to use those sounds. Um, it's it's a great opportunity. It's yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I I think maybe we're to that point where we should wrap things up. I could I could talk for hours about this stuff, but um, I think right around uh, an hour mark is a good length for an episode. So maybe you have words of advice or encouragement for people that are out there and. They're trying to make a, a creative life. Uh, what words of encouragement do you have for for people along that path?
1: I think, I think the only thing I'd say is is you gotta do it for real. You know, you gotta figure out what it is that you really want to do. What you know, what really motivates you, what your passion is, and then you just gotta do it for real. And you know, don't worry about whether the audience or the money is there. You know, that's that stuff will come and go. It it always does. It's it's cyclical. And you know, um, but you've gotta just always be doing it. You know, because you got to do it, and um, you know that's sort of the heart of the whole thing.
0: Beautiful. Thanks, Glenn.
1: Oh, absolutely. And let's play the wall sometime, all right?
0: Okay, we'll do it. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream: Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website john-lane.com and follow the show on Facebook simply search for Standing in the Stream thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music you can find him online at dclaymusic.com I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives thanks for listening